Uh, I wanted to start this morning by telling you a, a quick story that comes from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. Um, she's m- most well known as being a Christian who helped Jews um, escape the Nazis during the Holocaust. But in this little snippet, she basically tells a story about her life as a child. And um, she tells this story. She says, basically, she was in class one day, about a 10-year-old, and she read a poem that had the word sex sin in it or something, sexual sin. And she had no idea what that meant. She was too young and immature to understand. So she was traveling with her father, and some of you may have heard this story before. She was traveling with her father, and she said, hey, Dad, what is sex sin? What could that possibly mean? And the dad kind of waits for a while and um, thinks about what to do. And what he does is really interesting. He gives her a little parable. He takes his suitcase down off of the shelf, the the rack in the train, and he asks her to pick it up. And uh, she says, I can't. You know, he says, pick it up, take it off the train. And she kind of takes it, and she's trying to get down there um, with it, but can't. She says, it's too heavy for me to carry. And basically, he says, that's right. There's some things in this life that are too heavy for you to bear. There are burdens that you're not ready to bear. You're too young. You're too immature to do that. Let me carry those with you for a while. And what's sort of implicit in that little story and the reason that I tell it is because there's something about growing. There's something about maturity that that looks like this. The older we get, the more mature we get, the more we're able to do and the more we're able to think about as we should. So there's more things that we could do and there's more things that we can think about. But the question is this, what happens when you get older, but you still haven't matured? What happens if you're an adult, but you still can't carry the burdens that you, you, that you were designed to carry? What happens if you're an adult, but you're still acting like a child? And what's really interesting about this is that's exactly the charge that Paul levels against the first Corinthians. He tells them, if you were to go back and read all of Corinthians, You would see him on a number of occasions say, yes, you guys are are sanctified. Yes, you have been bought by the blood of Christ. Yes, you are Christians. You are in Jesus. However, I can't talk to you like spiritual people. I have to talk to you like infants, he really says to them. And then another place in, in chapter 13, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But now that I have become a man, I set aside my childish ways. And again, in chapter 14, he says, in your... um." Do not be children in your thinking, but in your thinking, be mature. So there's this kind of theme that runs throughout that says, yes, you've been built on Christ, but what does spiritual maturity look like? What does growth look like? Paul is saying, take a look at the life of your church. Yes, you have been built on the foundation that's in Jesus Christ. And that means, that's a very real thing. It means everything is new. All the things that we've been talking about with the Spirit. You have a new relationship with God. And because of that new relationship with God, you have a new relationship with one another. And he has poured out his Spirit upon you. And all things have been made new. You have a new way of thinking and a new way of living in the world. However, he says, look closer. Look even closer and ask, your, ask yourselves this, is the building continuing to grow on that foundation? So he, Paul himself, will kind of follow Paul. He, he shifts metaphors from a child who's growing up into a, and having an adult body to a building that's being built. And he says, look, it's built upon the foundation that's, that's in Jesus Christ. But have things come in from the world outside and from your background and from the culture that you belong to that have sort of stunted its growth? Have you started using building materials, the economy went bad, 
and suddenly you started using building materials that weren't as good as the ones you were using prior to it. Um, what's happened to um, the building? And it's really interesting. The Corinthians had allowed all sorts of things to enter into their church. This is my favorite book of the Bible, uh, at least of the New Testament. And one of the reasons is because of how many different issues it addresses and how crazy the Corinthians were. It's awesome. Listen to this list. There was quarreling, there was jealousy, there were divisions that led to So there were basically rival factions in the church. I follow this guy, I follow this other guy, I follow this guy, I follow this other guy. They had a rebellious spirit, an anti-authoritarian streak that turned them against Paul himself. He spends a lot, lot of 2 Corinthians defending his own ministry. Some of them sued each other. Others showed up drunk to worship. I'll let that sink in for a minute. They visited prostitutes. One group in the church even defends incest as being based upon freedom in Christ. Okay, And while all that sort of sexual immorality is going on, the married people quit having sex with each other. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I'm serious. Go home. Read it tonight. It's action-packed. They, these guys loved style more than substance. They loved the insights of secular philosophy more than biblical wisdom. They loved money and whatever money could buy. The rich people excluded or offended the poor. When they met together, these were the kind of people they admired. The loudest people, the people who had the flashiest spiritual gifts. They committed idolatry. They denied the resurrection. And the whole time they said, we're doing this because we have freedom in Christ. We are reigning as kings. These guys were crazy. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 18. And we're going to use Acts 18, the passage that was just read, as a way into all of 1 Corinthians. There's going to be themes from Acts 18 and themes from 1 Corinthians kind of winding together. But I want you to see what happens in, in Acts 18. I mean, you may be thinking about these guys. You may be thinking a lot of things right now. You may be thinking, well, our church doesn't have all those problems. Or, or maybe you're thinking we have some of those problems. The point is that he, there's not a, diff, a problem you could have that he leaves unturned in Corinthians. And what, what happens in, in Acts 18 is you'll see that Christ calls Paul to see the church as Christ himself sees the church. So even Paul who we all admire, is, has a um, limited perspective on this church. He sees the sin, but the Lord wants him to see, look, they are saved but struggling. They know Christ. They're just in danger of forgetting. They are loved by the Father. They just are having trouble not loving the world. And he invites him to have a new perspective. And he invites him to allow the knowledge that God is at work in their lives to help Paul endure the opposition that he's going to face and to help him rebuke them for the sins that they're committing. It gives him a great boldness. See, there's actually two things that are at work. There's kind of a dual, a dual thing going on. So people who are strong in the faith are rejected and opposed by the world. The gospel itself is opposed by the world. And those who are weak in the faith are rejected, not by outright attacks, but, 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 but like the allure sort of like the enticement of the world that's coming. It's really interesting. It makes me think kind of um, like in Star Wars, the, the, the dark side of the force sort of works this way. Have you ever noticed? Like Darth Vader is always trying to kill Luke Skywalker, but then at times, what does he do? 
He stops. He says, wait a minute. No, come to the dark side. Then he's trying to kill him. He's opposing him. He's rejecting him. But then he's enticing him. No, join the dark side. Come over to where we are. And you'll see that in Acts 18 and in 1 Corinthians, in both cases, the solution to both of those problems is to remember your identity in Christ. Paul has to remember his, his identity in Christ. Paul, the, the one who is serving others, has to remember his or her identity in Christ. And those who are weak and immature need to learn and recognize what it is that God has done in the person and work of Christ, the one who has died for you, the one who is buried, and the one who has risen again um, from the dead. And that growth, that process, facing opposition, facing sin, it looks painful sometimes. It's difficult. Sometimes the building's growing and you have to kind of tear down parts of the building and build it up again. And so that's one of the reasons that we've entitled the sermon series Growing Pains as we look through 1 Corinthians. Okay, so what I want to do is take you through Acts 18, 1 through 18, and I want to look at three things. I want to um, do, do a brief sort of look at what this city was like and how it influenced the lives and the hearts of the believers. Then secondly, I want to look at who these people are, how God wanted Paul to see them, and then we're going to end by talking about the gospel that overcomes even the strangest and most bizarre of problems, and hopefully that will set you up for the next, the coming weeks for the series that we're going to do in, in First Corinthians. Okay, take a look back at Acts 18, and I want to start by looking at two important facets of city life, economics and population. Okay, so we want to see what the city was like. I'm going to give you a very brief little historical deal. Um, it's not going to be too much. You can find out more on Wikipedia tonight. Yeah, go in and type in Corinth and see what happens. So we want to talk about money and people, the money and people that, that, that um, make up a city and particularly that make up this city. Look at verse 1 through 4. Let's start with verse 1 through 4. Paul leaves Athens where he preached his famous Mars Hill sermon, and he goes to Corinth. And while he's there, he starts to work as a tent maker. And he quickly finds a couple of other people. It says they're Jews. It probably means that they're Jewish Christians. They've been expelled from Rome. Um, by an edict of Claudius, and these guys are also working at tent maker, as tent makers, so Paul joins them. He probably lives in their house and shares their shops. This kind of thing would have been common, um, a common means of hospitality in the ancient Near East. The thing that leads us into is asking this question, what made Corinth such a good place to find a job? Okay, It's a city. People come to cities because there's, there are jobs there. That's one of the main reasons that people move to cities. But what particularly made Corinth a good place to find a job. Two things. Geography and history. First of all, for the geography. Uh, I wish I had a map, but um, Corinth stood on a little strip of land that was about six miles wide. It was an isthmus that separated the northern part of Greece from the southern um, Peloponnesian Peninsula. Okay, And on one side, you had an ocean, and on the other side, you had a sea. You've got the Mediterranean Sea going out this way. You've got it going out that way. And it had a port on both sides, which meant that if anybody wanted to get from the north into the south in the Mediterranean world, if anyone wanted to get from the east to the west, particularly from Italy or Rome, into um, Macedonia, they would cut through uh, Greece, and they would cut through Corinth. These guys, they thought it was easier, basically, to unload the ships, carry all the goods to the other port, and go around, as opposed to sort of working their way around the southern tip of the peninsula. Okay? Here's what that means. It was a major center of trade in the ancient world, and where there is 
such a major, um, where there's so much commerce going on, that's where you're going to find the money. And where you find the money, that's where you're going to find the people. Okay? So um, money plus opportunity is ultimately going to equal people. Um, the second thing, quick history lesson. By the time Paul had arrived in Corinth, it was a young and growing city. There had been a city there for about a 1,000 years. It got destroyed by the Romans, and it was left barren for about a 100 years. Think of like... Um, Atlanta getting destroyed by Sherman during the Civil War. Okay, so it was barren and desolate. And then about 100 years later, it gets rebuilt by um, Julius Caesar. And then another 100 years later is when Paul arrives, about 50 AD. You don't have to keep track of the dates or anything along those lines. Paul arrives, and it's a young and thriving city. Because it was new, because it was growing, because it was a center of trade, people flocked to the cities, and they flocked to the city um, to find a way of life. So you would find a whole diversity of people there. There would be slaves, freed slaves, soldiers, artists, teachers who were looking for students, students looking for teachers, businessmen, entrepreneurs, tourists as well. It was also like the the second most famous games in the ancient world took place here, the Isthmian Games. That was second only to the Olympics. Okay, so we all know about the Olympics. There was another set just like that. So every two years, tourists would come in and flood the local economy um, with ideas and with money. And I'm sure there were charlatans and and, and others who were trying to, um, just opportunists trying to make their way there. These people also would have brought with them diverse religious beliefs and views. So there was a good bit of diversity here. There would have been um, all sorts of idols. There would have been all sorts of idolatry. There would have been all sorts. I mean, and, and that wouldn't be so different from the other cities in the ancient world. But it was sort of a um, kind of a, an uber city in some senses, if you want to think of it that way. It was like a New York City. It was like uh, one, one person that I was reading this week compared it to New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all combined but to me, it sounds just like any urban center. You may insert Philadelphia there um, if you would like to. There, if you look back at verses 5 through 8, you'll see that there were Jews in the city. but the Jews, So that, that was one group. They were probably a minority. And um, they opposed and reviled Paul for telling them that Jesus is the Christ. And he responds with actually what's one of my favorite parts in this passage. He makes kind of a, a, a forceful announcement in verse 6. He says, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And then if you look down, it says he basically goes next door to the synagogue. So he only makes it like one door down. And the idea is not that he's never again going to try to speak to Jews and only focus on Gentiles. The idea is that what he's trying to do is, is focus um, on those who would listen to his message, and in this case, it's the Gentiles. And you'll see that a number of them were indeed saved. A number of them did believe his message. A number of them were indeed baptized. But the, but they were rooted in a Gentile, pagan worldview that's going to work its way into the church. Okay, so all that is to say, what did the church look like, and what are the ways that the church was influenced by the culture? And you could sort of, what you want to do while, while we're doing this is think in the back of your mind, what ways is, is our church influenced by the culture that's around it, okay? We all have a culture, right? We have a culture because of the time and place that we live in. So we're, we live in the 21st century, and that affects the way that we see the world. We live in the West, that affects the way we see the world. We live in America, that affects the way that we see the world. We live in, in an urban center, that affects the way that we see the world, okay? And you want to start to ask yourselves, are there things there 
that are opposed to the gospel and working their way into the gospel and working their way into the church. Here were a few ways that they were, that this was happening in Corinth. First of all, um, there was a intense spirit of competition and self-promotion. An intense spirit of competition and self-promotion. So the Corinthian church was diverse. It was filled with laborers like Priscilla and Aquila. It was also filled with land, you know, wealthy household owners um, like, let's see, Crispus, who's mentioned in the passage, Titius Justus, who's mentioned in the passage, Stephanus. And it appears that the wealthy and powerful continued to promote themselves without regard to the poor. They took the values of the culture and they put it into the church. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we learned that they would only align themselves with leaders that they found favorable, and they would even use their money as a leverage against them. So they thought, hey, Paul, we will pay you, and then we want you to stay in our house, and we want you to teach only the things that we find acceptable. But Paul would have none of that. If you look back and read 1 Corinthians 9, you'll see. Um, They would go to luxurious business dinners with associates that longed to impress them, even if it meant eating food, sacrifice to idols. Okay, another thing, they not only, not only were they filled with competition and with self-promotion, they were also filled with self-sufficiency and freedom. They thought they had everything they needed. So one of the things that's going to come up again and again is say, we value knowledge, we value wisdom, we already have it. Everything is permissible for me was a slogan that you would find in the church, not only in the culture um, of, Corinthian, of the Corinthian world. They had no need of anything. They felt like they didn't even need a future bodily resurrection. We already have everything that we need now. Everything is lawful for me. And I think sometimes we tend to think that there, there, there was no individualism in the ancient world. Sometimes we think that maybe there's no competition as we, um, as we think about it. And, and certainly there was nothing like global capitalism. There was nothing like a multi-million dollar advertising industry. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a spirit of self-promotion, a spirit of self-sufficiency, opportunism, and consumerism. Okay? The third thing that, they, that, that you'll find in the Corinthian church is that Gentile morality, Gentile reasoning, a Gentile worldview. You know, when Paul has to tell them not to visit temple prostitutes again, and when he tells them not to sue each other, and when he tells them, please, now that you're married, keep having sex with each other, you'll see that those are just not typical Jewish problems. Those are Gentile problems. They loved pleasing rhetoric, and they loved sophistry, winning admiration, Um, rather than leading others to the truth. One scholar puts it this way to sum up everything. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise, and proud in his physical strength. And the true Corinthian, uh, these are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law, but his own desire. Does that sound like any culture that you know? All right, let's take a look back at Acts 18. Look at verses 9 through 11. That's what the city looked like. That's what the church in the city looked like. But you have to ask yourself this question. The most important question, what does God think about the Corinthians? What does God think about the Corinthians? What does he think about the Corinthian church? What does he think about this situation? Paul is facing opposition. 
He's ministering to people who are enamored by the culture, and he must have been exhausted. But the Lord appears to him in this vision. Look again at verse 9. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. It says, Paul, you've got to change the way you're thinking about yourself and you've got to change the way you're thinking about others and the people in the city. Okay. First of all, Jesus reminds Paul that he is with him and that he was, he will protect him. We can't just, we can't, we can't breeze over this. The first part of this, uh, this vision do not be afraid, go on speaking and keep, keep uh, do not keep silent. No one will attack you to harm you. See, when you're confronted with opposition or when you face the sort of um, sludge that is sin being risen up in your life, the very first thing that you have to do is start by seeing yourself as God sees you. I have a friend who says he compares sin to scum. He says it's like pond scum. And it's kind of floating around in there in the pool. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit stirs that up and brings it to the surface and it's it's and he does that so that he can skim it across, skim it off, so so that he can wipe it away, so that he can so that it can be dealt with. If you keep burying it down, if you keep hiding it and never dealing with it, um, then it won't be dealt with. And that's a painful process, though. That can be a frustrating process. You can feel if if all you see is the fear of failure, if all you see is the fear of condemnation, you have to turn and see yourself from God's perspective. Christian growth and maturity begins with God's perspective. Otherwise sin will overwhelm you and it might bury you. You may be, you may feel buried by it right now. You may feel dead and buried by sin right now, but this is what God says. He says, I love you. I am with you. I have a job for you to do. I love that because mission it kind of when we, we when i was praying for talitha that's what came to mind god values those that he chooses and that he calls he sends them on a mission which says i have treated you with dignity you are created in my image you have been redeemed you have been bought with the blood of jesus and i am inviting you into my family i'm offering you perfect acceptance and god is not revealing your sin because he's capricious he doesn't reveal your sin because he is a tyrannical dictator again he's revealing it to you so that you can be restored so that a right relationship with him will be restored and so that you can grow and he says i'm with you i'm right there with you through the process i think that we tend to run away i think that we tend to live a superficial life i think that we tend to try to escape from seeing ourselves as we really are and, and sort of transacting with God. But if we bury those things, they can attempt to subtly destroy you. And so bring them to light. One of the invitations that comes from 1 Corinthians is bring sin to light, whether it's the abuse, whether it's the pain, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's some addiction, whether it's um, to pornography, or whether it's excessive drinking, or whether it's dissatisfaction, or whether it's loneliness, or whether it's depression, or perfectionism, or anxiety, bring those things to light. Jesus is with you in the struggle. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with you yet. He alone can deal with these things. 
And then the second thing Jesus reminds Paul is um, just a, a powerful verse. I have many in this city who are my people. That means all is not lost. That means all is not hopeless. Even though Paul has to work for a living, even though the the Jews reject his message, even though he comes face to face with broken systems of justice, that's what that whole um, verse 12 through 17 is about that we won't have time to look at very closely. God is in control and he's actively remaining faithful to his promises. When God says my people, that's Old Testament language for I will be with you and you will be my people. That is covenantal language which means God has made a promise and he is restoring the world to the perfect order for which he intended it. That means he is out. God God is a missionary God. He is out gathering worshipers to himself, inviting them into his presence so that he can love and be with them and enjoy them and so that they can worship him and enjoy him. And that's what we were talking about last week. He is identifying with his people. He knows who are his Even when we cannot see exactly who is his. And that is enough to motivate Paul to stay in the city for 18 months, which for Paul is a long time. Paul, most of the places that he goes, he's only there for a few months at a time. Ephesus is the only place he stays longer. But he stays in in Corinth Because he knows that God is transforming him. He knows God has people in that city. He knows God is sending him to participate with him on this glorious mission. And he goes forward and does the work that needs to be done. Speak and do not be silent. And like, you may be worried that you're going to face opposition. Again, Ashley's example of going out into the neighborhood, even just to talk to kids, sort of raises up all of those fears that are within us. You may, you may be afraid to speak to people about Jesus because you think that they will uh, object. You may think that they will reject you. They will. <laughs> They're going to. It's not a surprise, but some will believe. You may think, hey, all my educated friends that work with me, I've told them, but they don't listen. They're not going to believe. Well, let them go and go to another group. Find day laborers. And if the day laborers don't listen, find immigrants in the city. And if one group of immigrants, if the Ukrainians aren't listening, then let's go find the other group that's there. There are plenty. Philadelphia is a huge city. The mission cannot be over. The mission cannot be over. We need to find the people. We need to take the gospel to them with loving deeds of, of kindness and with the very words of truth that bring reconciliation and restoration between man and God. We have the words of hope, the, the words of life. The mission is not over. Do we need to plant more churches? Yes, we need to plant more churches. We need to plant another church right next door and then another one right next door and then another one right next door. The mission isn't over, but the work cannot possibly be accomplished yet. And Paul sees that, and that's the message that comes through here. Last week I told you, if I could just add this in, last week I said, I, I said, look for who in this body you can help, who around you is needy, who around you needs that hope and that restoration. Um, and then the question becomes, How? How do I get into their lives? How do I help them? And if you, if a person came to mind that you were thinking of last week, go ahead and continue praying for them and go to them. And here's what my wife and I were talking about in the car. I said, I said, Julie, okay, here's the deal. Last week I said, find someone who needs restoration and help and healing and go to them. How do people do that? 
My wife is smarter than I am. <laughs> She's better with people than I am. <laughs> when we like do counseling, premarital counseling, you, I, I want everyone to receive premarital counseling with me because so that they can meet Julie. <laughs> because I'll sort of, you know, I'll get really like seminary on everybody and give a history lesson or something, and then Julie's like, "Here's your real problem. Here's what you need." <laughs> so talk to Julie. <laughs> and um, here's what she said. She said, and I agree. She said. We have to get past the superficial ways that we relate to each other. You may be friends with someone that you've been friends with for, year, for years, and you continually have the same conversations about what you drink and what you eat and what you wear. And she says, we pray and we want it to be very organic. We want suddenly just the spirit to strike. And then we say, okay, now is the time to heal and to help. But in praying, we need to plan to have more intentional conversations with people, more open, honest conversations with people, more cut-to-the-chase conversations with people, more get-to-the-heart-of-the-issue. What is the sin that you are dealing with? Where does the gospel apply to this issue? Those conversations don't happen without work and without effort and without pain and without rejection. The suitcase is still heavy. The suitcase is still heavy. It's hard work to worship God and to love other people. But it's what Christ is calling us to do. So the question remains, how do you find that perspective? How do you find that strength? Where does maturity come from? And it comes from repeatedly hearing the gospel message and applying it to our lives. Repeatedly hearing the gospel message and applying it to our lives. And that's why I love what Paul does and what he doesn't do. Two things that I'll leave you with. First of all, here's what Paul doesn't do. He never sees the Corinthians as totally cut off. He never sees them as hopeless. He never sees them as a waste of time. He never writes them off. It's amazing. And the second thing he doesn't do is he never assumes that because God has people in this city that addressing the issues aren't important. You see what I mean? He, he never considers the issues unimportant. See, he's not a fundamentalist. He's not a monk. And I love Paul. There have been countless people in the history of Christianity who have attempted to solve these problems. Where is the culture coming into our church? Where is the culture coming into, into our Christian life by escaping from the world? Some of my favorite ones come from the ancient church in the medieval period. So like the guy who stood on a pole, do you remember that? Simon of the desert. He stood on a pole out in the desert for like six months just to suffer with Christ and to try to rid the world of sin. Has, have you guys seen the movie Simon of the Desert? Okay. You, you've got another assignment. All right. Or uh, like my, one of my favorites is a, guy, a, a monk named Drickthelm who lived in northern England. And Bede writes about him in, in a book called The History of the English Church and People. And he says um, the guy would stand waist deep in icy cold water just to, to experience the sufferings of Christ and to rid his life of sin. And anybody who walked by would say, isn't it bad? Drickthelm would say, oh, I've known worse. <laughs> 
it's, it's been colder. Yeah, it's not such a bad thing. And we have our modern versions of, of this. We have our fundamentalisms where we want to sort of separate ourselves from the world. We want to form a little Christian um, cocoon. We want to only surround ourselves with safe places and safe things. And we want to sort of um, make everything kind of uh, Christian. We want to read like only Christian books and listen to only Christian music and sort of... Um, only go to Christian laundromats and, and all that sort of stuff. It's true. It's, it's really true. We do this. We want, to, we want a safe place that we can go and I can empathize with the desire. It seems like getting away from the, the, the temptation would solve the temptation. It seems that way. So I can kind of understand monks. I don't understand the not wanting to have sex thing. Um, but other than that, yes, I said that. Other than that, I understand, but here's the deal. Sin cuts much deeper than that. You can stand on a pole in the desert. You can stand waist deep in icy water. You can only listen to Christian music and still not have solved the main problem in your life, which is the problem of your heart. You could change your behavior. Paul says it's not about your behavior. You have a heart problem. You have a heart condition. And what Paul does is he says, I'm going straight for your heart. Attitudes values, the behavior is not enough. You can be locked away in a room by yourself and still sin because the seed of every sin exists in your human heart. And this is what Paul does. Here's what he does. He goes for the heart. He wants to capture your heart and be ready for a dynamic look at the human heart. Here's what he says. Paul says, Only the cross of Christ will capture your heart. Only the cross of Christ will capture your heart. Only the cross will humble you so that you abandon selfish ambition, so that you abandon power plays. Who can look at Jesus dying on the cross, creator of the universe, humbling himself for you and still remain arrogant and say, I like this person. I don't like that person. I'm going to follow that person. I'm not going to follow this other person over there. No one can. Only the wisdom of God that's displayed in the cross will expose the futility of human reasoning. And Paul goes head to head. He is a smart man. He'll take on secular reasoning, but it's only the wisdom of God found in the cross that makes all those things look foolishness and like folly. Only in the cross does the Spirit set you free from the fears you have in life and the fears you have of death. Freedom from fear is hard for me even to imagine. That's what's promised in the cross of Christ. Only his power will enable you to fight against sin. Only his power in the cross will will help you to flee from temptation. Only the power of the cross will help you to avoid sexual immorality, all kinds of idolatries. Only that love that Jesus brings on the cross, only the love that that would bring Jesus himself to the cross, Enables, enables you to say, yes, I am free, but therefore I'm going to put myself under other people to serve other people, to fill them with hope, to fill them with renewal. You belong to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
He has risen and he has poured out his spirit upon you. He has brought you into this glorious community. And weekly, what do we do? That's what we're doing. We're circling around the cross, not so that we could, we could remain um, isolated from the rest of the world, not so we can pull ourselves out of the culture, but so that we can gaze upon it, even if the world scorns us, so that we can find ourselves hidden in him through communion and listening to his word, so that we can see and have exposed our human foolishness and our human tendencies. And then we go back out into the world. We go out into the world to heal. We go back out into the world to forgive. We go back out into the world to restore. God is growing you. He is growing you this body. He is building a building. And there is not an area of your life that he does not want to conform to your image, to his image. And that's what you're going to see in 1 Corinthians, finances, sex, life, your job. And the gospel applies to every decision that you make in every area of your life, every thought, every belief, every action. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. I pray that you would um, just... Turn your hearts and your minds to thinking of Jesus on the cross as we come to commune and fellowship with him. And just let him expose what's there. Let him expose the fear. Let him expose the failure. Let him expose the guilt. And rejoice, rejoice in what he has done in offering you the bread of life and his body, his blood that was shed for you. Let's, let's pray.